Hello and welcome to Triple Bladed Sword, the podcast that looks at the science fiction, fantasy, and horror that we read, watch, and play. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Pershawn. I teach English literature and film studies at McEwen University, and the following is a lecture that I gave to my students in the winter of 2022 on steampunk and Disney. So right off the bat, I want to make sure that everybody knows uh, that I don't actually think that um, Disney invented steampunk, but I think that Disney, as a company, was crucial in the development of the aesthetic of steampunk, that it was a major player in why steampunk would emerge when it did, and that when people were reaching back into a toy box slash toolbox of neo-Victorian or Victorian or vintage pasts, quite often what they were reaching for was not texts from the 19th century, but rather texts from the 20th century or films from the 20th century that were set in the 19th century or were adapting narratives from that period. My interest in Disney and steampunk uh, began, I should say, you know, really, really was set off uh, intensely in 2010 when um, the Disney company released a new line of commemorative pins. <laughs> I hope, I'll bet that for some people it'll be like, oh, wow, that was a bit of a letdown. I was expecting something a little more grand. Uh, when I think about it, I do too. Uh, it seems ridiculous to me. But seriously, there was, a ser there was a set of commemorative pins and memorabilia that you could get at the Disney parks. And they were steampunk versions of the, you know, the classic Disney characters, Mickey, Donald, Goofy, etc. And if you've ever been to one of the uh, theme parks, the Disney theme parks, you will know that they have these little commemorative pins that you can get and people collect these. They're, this is like, you know, some people collect spoons and some people collect coins or comics or whatever. And there are people who collect these Disney pins. And as somebody who loves collecting, and both times that I've been to Disney World in Orlando, I would get the shakes whenever I was in the little stores where they would sell this stuff because I like little pins and stuff. Uh, I just have nowhere to put any of it. Um, but you, you, you could get a sash that you would put your pins on or, you know, get yourself a Disney coat that you could put all your pins on. Um, and these mechanical kingdom, these steampunked versions of Disney characters were part of that line. And both people in the steampunk community and people who criticized steampunk as a narrative um, genre or as a as a as a, as a ostensibly countercultural movement um, were like, "That's it. It's over. Steampunk's done. It's dead." 2010. It's dead. Um, and it was because of Disney. It was because of Disney getting involved. Uh, science fiction writer Catherine M. Valente was like, "It's over." It, the, the, the genre, that's, it's finished. Now that Disney has it, there can't be anything punk about this. There can't be anything countercultural. Again, the assumption that, you know, you have to have something punk for it to be steampunk. Uh, we know that the term doesn't really mean anything. Um, not in that sense, anyway. And, but there was this idea, I guess, you, you, you could see in the way that people were talking about it, that Disney was appropriating 
steampunk. You know, that they, they had no business getting in those punks backyard and taking their cogs and their gears and their goggles. How dare they appropriate this aesthetic? And I was pretty dumbfounded by it. It all looked pretty cool. If I could have at the time, I would definitely have collected all those pins. And I loved the collector's book. It was all it was beautiful stuff. It looks really nice. Um, but I was really flummoxed. I was confused by the reaction of so many people who should have known better about Disney and steampunk. Just the year before, 2009, I had been at the Eaton Conference in Riverside, California. The Eaton Conference was a science fiction, academic science fiction conference that had run for uh, many years. And uh, it is no more. I got to attend twice before it got shut down. It was one of my favorite events to go to. And it was the first academic conference I'd ever been at as a full-fledged academic, not just as a student presenting at, say, like a graduate student conference or an undergraduate conference or something like that. This was my first, you know, real academic conference. And I was super nervous, and I was there presenting on Captain Nemo. I was presenting on Vern's Nemo and many of the iterations that, um, you know, the adaptations where Nemo isn't who he was originally, um, the way in which uh, that character had ab absolutely been appropriated by Disney and by other, uh, by writers and um, other filmmakers. Uh, but there was a panel there and, and Greg Bear, science fiction writer, Greg Bear was talking about how he felt that the beginning of steampunk, because that was the theme was one of the themes of the of the that particular um, instance of the Eaton conference. It was um, Jules Verne and and anything associated with him, uh, which is a pretty broad umbrella if you consider that Jules Verne and H.G. Wells and Mary Shelley are sort of considered like the precursors to steampunk. So if you say Jules Verne, you're, you're lots of lots of room for play. Um, but I uh, th there was a there was a definite call for papers that were about steampunk. So there was a panel about steampunk. And Greg bears on it, and he said, "I think steampunk began with Harpergoff's Nautilus." Now I don't agree with that. Um, I don't agree that, um, it gets kicked off with, um, Harper Goff's Nautilus or that, that, that's, that's where the thing that we call steampunk actually began. Um, as I said, in, in one of the prior lectures, I think steampunk begins in the 1980s, right around the same time that Disney made the movie, the great mouse detective, which by the way, has an amazing, uh, clock tower scene. You know, there's always a battle with a clock tower, um, between, you know, some Victorian hero and their nemesis and in the great mouse detective, uh, it's done on this grand scale because you have, you know, mice, fighting in a clock tower, which means that those cogs, oh, ever so steampunk giant cogs, um, were massive as a result. But I think there's a kernel of truth in what Bear said. And I felt it at the, at the time. As soon as he said Harper Goff's Nautilus, I was like, oh yeah, the Nautilus, absolutely. Um, from Walt Disney's adaptation of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Now, if you know nothing about 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea and nothing about Jules Verne, uh, basically the 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea is the story of a uh, guy who hates the British Empire and he builds a super submarine that can smash through ships and that's what he's doing. And then um, some, uh, you know, a French scientist and his serving man and in the book, a Canadian 
um, harpooner, uh, Ned Land, end up on board as captives of this guy, this, this madman, Captain Nemo. And it's a, you know, as a book, it was a, it's, it's a great adventure story. Um, but as a film, it was even more so, you know, um, the director, Richard Fleischer really knew what he was doing. Uh, the film was shot in CinemaScope, which was a wide, uh, aperture, wide angle, um, way of, of shooting film. Um, you got these widescreen, um, aspect ratios coming out around this time as a way to try to lure uh, television viewers back to the movies. And they came, they showed up for 20,000 leagues under the sea. Cause you know, you had this widescreen picture and it showed awesome adventure sequences and a really, really cool submarine and all this amazing underwater photography. It wasn't that underwater photography was anything new, but to see it as clear and as big and colorful as that film presented it was definitely a draw. And then, you know, as many people can tell you, uh, there's this great sequence involving a giant squid, um, which, you know, to, to a modern eye probably looks pretty fakey, but has been considered one of the great moments in special effects since it was done. Um, so it's, this is an exciting adventure film with lots of really cool underwater photography. And then, what my dad once said to me was kind of like, you know, the Nautilus was like the Millennium Falcon of that generation. So you were a kid at that time thinking about cool ships. Well, the Nautilus was one of them. The Nautilus's design was absolutely awesome. James Martin's, um, in an article called Between Jules Verne and Disney, Brains, Brawn, and Masculine Desire in 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, refers to... Goff's Nautilus as this Baroque vehicle that looked like the Loch Ness Monster. Harper Goff, the production designer for the film, had wanted the submarine to look like a cross between a shark and an alligator. Merton's refers to the look of the ship as a, as a space of elegant power. But we should know that um, the vision that Goff brought to the film was a departure from Verne's vision. Verne's vision of the Nautilus was just an underwater cigar. It's a very plain cylinder. Uh, it would move very nicely in water, uh, you know, I assume. Whereas <clears throat> Goss design has all these, you know, crazy hooks and weird looking um, sawtooth looking things, tons of rivets, and it kind of looks like it's rusting. <laughs> and I think that that's some of what, what Greg Bear meant when he said that's where steampunk began. Um, and I would go so far as to say, I think he was also saying that people who saw that show when they were kids are some of the people who are really digging steampunk now. Because you had some, you know, I want to say elderly, but they were older fans of uh, steampunk who, you know, would say, oh, I remember when I saw, uh, you know, I'd get into conversations with these people at the cons and they'd be like, I remember when I saw, you know, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea in the movie theaters, right? That's always, that's always a little bit of, of, of geek credibility, right? Uh, it's why I will always tell Star Wars fans that I, I saw them, that I saw it in 77, like that matters. Um, like I, I've owned it a little longer than you have. Um, but the interior of the Nautilus was very much uh, what Verne's vision was. Uh, this elegant power, as Mer Merton's called it, but also the ve vehicular utopias uh, that Arthur B. Evans, he's a Verne scholar, talks about in this article where he's, he's like, 
everything that Vern imagines for his characters to travel in has this sense of opulence and comfort. You know, you can, you can put on your smoking jacket and have a cigar, go over and play something on the pipe organ, grab a book off of this huge library that we've got sitting in here. We, we've got velvet and brass and beauty, right? This isn't just utilitarian. It's, got this sense of, of, um, you know, Victorian excess, <laughs> we might say. Uh, but that's the vision that people saw in 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. And we got to remember, this was a successful film. Never mind that it would be replayed on, uh, you know, television with, with The Wonderful World of Disney, and then later on released to home video. So this film had legs, but in 1971, uh, Disney built a theme park, a part of their theme park, an attraction, I should say, um, based around the film 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. And so I think there was probably a nostalgic resurgence. People who saw the film in 54, now grown up, now they've got kids, they go to Disneyland, they go, you know, or sorry, they go to Disney World, and now you can ride the Nautilus. What? That's like now you know, me going to Disneyland or Disney World and getting to go and stand in the Millennium Falcon, I think. If my dad can be trusted in his estimation of the importance of the Nautilus. I certainly think he can, because when I went to steampunk events, the first one I went to in 2008, there were steampunk pins of the Nautilus. There were steampunk pins. Like, you know, the little ichthus fish that uh, Christians will put on their bumper stickers, and sometimes people write the word Darwin in it. <laughs> And they put it on their bumper stickers. Well, this was one of those stickers, but it was this metal pin, a metal, uh, a metal ichthus shaped like the Nautilus. And I don't know, do you say not a lie? I saw many Nautiluses, not a lie. At it was, it's not a lie that I saw <laughs> many Nautiluses um, at steampunk events. You go into the vendors hall, and you're walking around, and there's art that's a you know reminiscent of it. Um, I'm thinking of Mickey Amen's, um, painting the rescue just off the top of my head. That's extemporaneous. I'll try to put that in an upcoming, uh, lecture so that we can take a look at that and, and compare it. Um, but most notably, I remember at the, uh, third SteamCon. SteamCon was this, uh, big steampunk convention, one of the biggest steampunk conventions in the world at the time. Uh, and the third one was like, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea themed. And there were some guys there in the vendor hall and in the art gallery from Volcania Volunteers. And these guys were taking Harper Goss designs and creating blueprint art and little replicas of the Nautilus itself. Beautiful, beautiful replicas. You can, I believe, still order them. It looks like their website is still active. I wouldn't know. I can't afford to do that. <laughs> but, um, you know, one of my friends who lives in Seattle, uh, Kevin Style, he's a big Jules Verne fan, big steampunk fan. He's big in the steampunk community. He's known as the Airship Ambassador. He has a Nautilus-themed bedroom in his house. I've slept in that room. And you can really see the influence of that velvet and brass interior and that Nautilus exterior, that, that Baroque Loch Ness monster crossed with a gator and a shark. 
um, that it somehow captures the imagination. And with the success of that film and the way that that design imprinted on people's minds, not only from the original film, but then again with the theme, the, the, the theme parks uh, attraction, I think that 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea kicked off a interest in making Vern adaptations. Now, I said something completely wrong in my book, Steampunk FAQ. I messed up. Um, I actually messed up twice in here. <laughs> and I'm, I'm not happy about it. I'm super ticked about it. I don't know how it got past me, but I talk in the section about the, the movie Around the World in 80 Days like it was made by Disney. It was not. It was made by United Artists. I was wrong. Um, so just go through the book and cross out Disney every time you see it and replace that with United Artists. Um, but this does not change my opinion that the reason that you would make Around the World in 80 Days in 1956 was probably largely due to the success of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea in 1954. And uh, this is a movie that won many Academy Awards, including, if I recall correctly, Best Picture. Best Picture. Uh, this poster says 52 Best Picture Awards, so lots of people apparently thought it was really good. Um, <laughs> when I watched it, I, I it's a bit of a snoozer. But I, I understand why it would have been seen as really, really cool at the time. And we live in the age of Google Earth, and we can take a You want to see what some place on the other side of the planet looks like, you can just Google it. In 1956, you could go see Around the World in 80 Days. Beautiful, beautiful travel footage. <laughs> they show you what all these different places in the world look like. And, and, and you know, that would, that would have been something really notable. And it's really well shot in Technicolor. Um, but here we have another Verne adaptation, two years later. And it was a hit. So now we've got two big hits, one by Disney, one by United Artists. Disney kicks off the ball, United Arts Artists catches it, and starts running with it. And this next film, not as well known, but I think really indicative of how popular Vern adaptations were becoming, that you could like slap Vern's name on a movie and people would show up. Vern equaled excitement, adventure, perhaps widescreen. Um big color, right? And then it, it, the guy, one of the guys who was responsible for bringing the Japanese Godzilla, the original Godzilla movie to America, cutting it up, changing the movie, sticking an American actor, well, Canadian actor, into the film, um, doing a bit of a butcher job, but it was a successful ploy, uh, decided that, you know, it would be a good idea to do something like that again with Czechoslovakian filmmaker Karel Zeman's um, and it's not actually called The Fabulous World of Jules Verne, but that's what Levine, Joseph E. Levine, billed it as. Uh, the original title, if you translated it, is, is roughly um, in, Invention for Destruction. Invention for Destruction, which makes, just makes me think of like a Guns N' Roses album. Um, but uh, this was a movie based on one of Verne's lesser-known books called Facing the Flag, but it had elements from 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. It had elements from Robert the Conqueror, so you had, like, cool airships and submarines and giant monsters and all the things that people had come to associate with Vernian cinema. There in 1958, being brought from Czechoslovakia to many countries, but the United States in particular, 
Um, I mean, just looking at the paratext of the poster, the thousand and one wonders of the world to come, the wingman and the living submarine, the fantastic pedal blimps, the four-footed fighting machines, the underwater escape from Terror Island, the first motion picture produced in the magic image miracle of mistimation. <laughs> stop motion animation. Carol Zaman was really good at stop motion animation, but what audiences got wasn't a sock pow kind of adventure movie, but an incredibly beautiful film. I mean, there's some exciting sequences, but it's just this incredibly beautiful film, which was attempting to make a cinematic version of the Victorian line engravings that were in the original versions of Verne's work. Like if you were to get a, a book that had images from the first editions of Verne's novels, then you would see these beautiful line engravings, this incredible art. And Karel Zeman made a movie that tried to look like it was line art. And it's gorgeous. It's an incredible movie. It's lovely to watch. It's, I think it's delightful. Um, but its squid fight wasn't half as exciting as the one from 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Because it's all stop-motion animation. So it looked clunky. It looked weird. It wasn't what audiences wanted. Why am I including it here? Well, because I think it's a classic and I think everybody should watch it. And you all should know that uh, there are now uh, Blu-ray versions of it that are playable uh, in North America. Uh, the Criterion Collection came out with one uh, that has all of Zayman's work. Um, but you can get Invention for Destruction for yourself from second-run uh, Blu-rays. And I think that's exciting. But I think it's strongly in, it's a strong indicator of, you know, like, Joseph Levine would never have been like, oh, let's bring in this movie because it's pretty. He was like, somebody made a movie based on Jules Verne's works? Oh, well, we can make money with that alone. We don't need anything more than Verne's stamp. We can just put his name on the poster and people will show up. I don't know if that panned out financially, but that movie is the most successful film in Czech history insofar as international like releases go. So take that for what you will. Um, shifting off of Verne for a little while, we get George Powell's The Time Machine, which is an adaptation of an H.G. Wells novel in 1960. And the title tells everything we need to know about this movie's influence on the steampunk scene. Where we had Harper Goff's Nautilus, we now have Bill Ferrari's Time Machine, which is this great cinematic icon in many ways, like the Nautilus, um, with its brass rails. It's got these Rococo arabesques on that disc in the background. And there are all these rivets in clusters on the disc. Incidentally, there are 365 of those rivets meant to, you know, um, the you know, days of the year, represent the days of the year. But this thing is like a steampunk sled, you know, and it will take you through time. Again, I think we have a really strong production design influence on people who are going to grow up to write steampunk, draw steampunk, be interested in steampunk. By the time... Walt Disney made The Island at the Top of the World, which isn't really a Verne picture, but, you know, has an airship and it's exploding in the poster and there's a volcano exploding. Um, Brian Taves, who's a scholar of Verne 
in general, but Verne Film in particular, he's written a great book about that. And I owe so much of what I know about Verne and film. Um, although apparently I didn't read Taves well enough to remember to tell you that it was United Artists and not Disney who made Around the World in 80 Days in 1956. Disney did make an Around the World in 80 Days film. They did it in 2004 and it sucked. In 1974, we've got this poster, right? Adventure Beyond Imagination. There's an airship. Maybe that's Jules Verne. That's, you know, is this, is this another adaptation like this? Well, Brian Taves said that between 1951 and 1971, there was an average of one Verne film released every year. Now, not all of those were kind of neo-Victorian, old-timey vintage films. They weren't all set in a vintage past. Some of them, you know, were... were you, you couldn't adapt them in that way. Um, but Verne's name had become synonymous with adventure. And alongside Verne, you had a bunch of Wells adaptation. So put those two names together and you've got excitement and adventure in the distant or not so distant past in a vintage past right uh, so that in the 70s amicus films uh, i don't want to say an offshoot of hammer because that's not quite what they were but they were a low budget film company that made movies that were very loose adaptations of edgar rice burroughs uh, novels you know like you want to journey to the center of the earth amicus has got you you want to travel back in time to the land that you know nobody remembers anymore Amicus has got you. Now, Amicus went under before they made the movie that I'm going to talk about next. But the director of all of those Amicus films, which had this sort of like Vernian, Wellesian, Barosian uh, vibe to them, uh, went on to make another movie called Warlords of Atlantis. He made it with the actor who had played in most of those other films, a guy named Doug McClure, uh, who was a country singer originally, and then I think he was on a TV show, a Western TV show called The Virginian. Um, anyway, you know, American tough guy. And Warlords of Atlantis, I saw this in I saw this in theaters, and I don't think I saw it the year that it came out, because... Um, but I, I saw it a little while later, not too long after that, shortly after uh, my family moved uh, to the city that I grew up in because they had a theater. The town that I grew up in had a movie theater for like a year or two, but it was like really, really tiny. And then I don't know why I'm telling you guys all of this information. I just like sharing about this. Why? Because Warlords of Atlantis was one of the best experiences of my childhood. <laughs> I remember going to see this at a matinee and I... Don't remember if anybody was with me or if it was just me and some buddies. I don't know. But uh, when I was a kid, movies that had, you know, movies like Warlords of Atlantis would often play at the matinee because it was the only place that they could sort of run the film in rotation and make some extra money on it um, because we were still uh, in the days before the, the, the explosion of home video. And uh, Warlords of Atlantis, I remember the trailer for it. I remember going to see it. It had giant monsters. It had, you know, a bathyscap, one of those little, like, diving bells, right? Uh, and everything about this was just my imagination, because I had gotten into 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea when I was in grade two, and did my best to read it. Um, you know, had to rely on children's versions, mostly, and 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 adaptations to really understand the narrative but uh you have some adventurers on you know they're, they're they're adventuring into the depths in this diving bell and they get attacked by a monster underwater and then once they get they they get 
cut loose and they get pulled down through some water and they emerge in this underground space that's this must be the lost realm of atlantis and there's these atlantean guards and i think there was an atlantean princess i haven't seen this film in quite some time uh i skimmed it a bit when i read when i wrote my book uh, but I did not watch the film in its entirety. Uh, lots of great big monsters and excitement and adventure. Uh, that sense of exploration. Uh, and, I, and if anyone's listening to this or watching this and you're starting to go, this sounds really familiar, uh, I don't blame you because you're probably thinking about Disney's Atlantis, The Lost Empire, which was released in 2001. So now we jump forward many years so we jump from the 70s and warlords of atlantis and its low budget thrills to atlantis the lost empire and i know that when i saw the trailers and the paratexts the posters the 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 promotional material for atlantis the lost empire it reached down into my soul and it and it grabbed hold of that kid who was into 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea when he was in grade two and saw Warlords of Atlantis when he was probably in grade four, um, who loved those sorts of stories when he was a kid. And it said, hey, buddy, this movie is for you. So 2001, we've got nine years until the end of steampunk, <laughs> according to Valente. Um and here's Disney making a film that I don't know. I don't know anyone who'd be like, "That's not steampunk." I don't know anyone who would say that. I certainly wouldn't. the 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 vessels in the movie. I mean, the, the most of the there's a lot of production design. By the way, that was done by Mike Mignola, the guy who brought you Hellboy. Um, so we talked about Mike Mignola in an earlier lecture. He did, you know, uh, Gotham by Gaslight. Now Mike Mignola giving us production design work for Atlantis. Uh, I don't know if he was responsible for the design of the ships, though. That's something I need to look into. But the design of the ships, very reminiscent of Goff's Nautilus, right? Um, there's just this old-timey Baroque feel to what we've got here. Uh, not necessarily velvet, but certainly brass, iron, um, a vintage look to these ships. And lo and behold, once they get going on their journey, just like in Warlords of Atlantis, along comes a giant creature and wrecks their ship. And then they're sent out into the, you know, wild blue yonder, the wild blue beneath in all of these little pods that absolutely feel like they owe design allegiance to Harper Goff's Nautilus. But I mean, it wouldn't surprise me if that was entirely intentional. I don't think that this was like, ooh, we accidentally we accidentally made all the submarines in this Disney cartoon. Like the submarine in that Disney movie. I don't think that's accidental. I think that's absolutely intentional. Um, from what I understand, this was supposed to spark a renaissance of that the all those old live action Disney films that were, you know, adventure and excitement. Disney made a lot of live action movies in the 20th century that were adventure films. It was something that at one time they were known for. And uh, that was also, by the way, why I was like, when everybody was losing their shit over Disney buying Star Wars, I was like, no, no, it's going to be fine. Just shut up. I mean, whether or not you like the movies, they, Disney knows how to make entertaining stuff. Um, 
but this is this is that reaching back and and, and grabbing hold of Goff's uh, design aesthetic and using it again. Uh, the digging machines feel very much like some of the digging machines that we saw in in like there's a there's a digging machine in one of the Amicus films, and uh, the one that's in Atlantis feels inspired by that in many ways. So uh, we've got these crazy biplanes at the very end of the movie. So it's got a very strong vintage retro feel to it. Um, and I think it's one of the films that spurs the relaunch. You got Wild Wild West in 1999, Atlantis in 2000. In 2002, you get Treasure Planet. I don't remember the exact year, but somewhere around here, we get League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. And then there's just a decade of hit and miss um, films that have some aspect of the steampunk aesthetic to them whether or not we can say they're fully steampunk films you know like to speak about Mike magnolia again hellboy the hellboy movies have a lot of steampunk production design in them whether or not the films could be said to be steampunk i don't know but there's this critical mass of films being released right around this time and disney is there not for the full kickoff, because I, I still think I, I, would, I would still put, place, place that squarely with Wild Wild West. But Atlantis, even though it was, you know, it was a box office failure by Disney standards. Um, well, I know a lot of people who are really into steampunk who love that movie. Treasure Planet, critically acclaimed. Again, not the box office smash it needed to be. But lots of people who love that vintage retro feel love treasure planet i i it's funny to me when people talk about treasure planet they'll kind of like lean in and they'll be like is is treasure planet steampunk because they want it to be right and i'm like yeah absolutely it's got flying galleons how could it be anything else there's galleons in space and some people will be like but there's no steam and there's no punk oh shut up um there's lots of instances of narratives with flying ships with sails uh, a lot of people have been really into jim butcher's uh recent um well it's not so recent anymore it's been a few years and we're waiting for the next installment but he started a steampunk series and it featured ships that had sails that flew uh philip reeve did his lark light uh, series and ships in space spell jammer from D D. um some people would say that's not steampunk i would say that's a vintage retro futuristic bit of techno fantasy so it seems like steampunk to me you know there's the vessels flying through space in that way that's how we imagined we might go through space in ye old times right disney had thought about doing a, a whole steam like a whole theme park based in the you know the airship from the island at the end of the world the nautilus all that stuff they were they were thinking hard about doing that in the 90s and i i don't know this for sure for certain but it's an interesting you know uh cluster of of events that they would be developing atlantis and they would be developing Treasure Planet while they were in talks to do a theme park that would feel like those adventure films of yore. A steampunk park, if you will. They certainly didn't give up on that vision. They went with it in uh, their Disney park for Paris. The Space Mountain at the Paris Disney uh, uh, park? Very retrofuturistic. Very baroque you know, to use Merton's term again, 
not that he owns it, just that that's the one that he used for the Nautilus. Um, and you can see in this painting, this uh, production painting for that theme park, there's the Nautilus parked in the water there. And as I understand, that is where it's parked. If you go to the park, I've never been. Disney Japan has a Nautilus ride in their um, sea uh, park. So Disney was a huge part of the creation of a steampunk vision. Um, whether or not the writers in the 70s and the 80s were directly pulling from 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea or Around the World in 80 Days or any of the Verne or Wells adaptations or pastiches in that period between 1951 and we can pull it right up to 1978 because I still think Warlord, Warlords of Atlantis and the other Amicus films were trying to riff on that desire for um, adventures in, the, in these vintage pasts. Whether those writers were aware that they were drawing from that, I mean, they, they, could, have been, they could have been resisting it. They're gonna, they could have been like, I'm going to do this nothing like Disney. But that's a little bit like when fantasy writers are like, I'm going to do this nothing like Tolkien. It, it's more demonstrative of that influence, not an instance where it says, well, it's, it's not. It's, it's still influential. When a fantasy writer goes out of their way to not be Tolkien, Tolkien's still being influential. And so I think that, that these films, I think that Taves's, Brian Taves' work on Jules Verne in film, and then we can add H.G. Wells to that, we can add H, uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs' adaptations and pastiches to that, that there was this slew of films from the 50s all the way up to the 70s. And I, I don't think that that ride ever quite stopped. I think people, they kept making these movies in little spits and spurts, like um, Disney's uh, Return to Oz is, has a really strong steampunk aesthetic to it. Um, or, you know, we could say was influential on the steampunk aesthetic. Uh, to say nothing of the works of people like Terry Gilliam and Tim Burton, both of whom, by the way, were strongly influenced, or they've said that they were, by Karel Zeman. And, you know, his, 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 movie, his movies with all this stop-motion animation um, that were set in those vintage pasts again. Um, but I think that the film was probably more influential than the books were. Uh, and that's not me wanting it to be that way. It's just when I would go to um, steampunk conventions, everybody would be like, oh, steampunk began with Jules Verne and H.G. Wells. So I always made sure that I would have a presentation on Jules Verne. They were always the most poorly attended. Like I'd go in and I'd be like, hey, everybody. And there'd be like five, six people there. Um, whereas, you know, you'd walk down the hall and they were doing something on steampunk movies and then, you know, the place would be full or, you know, just go to the, go to the one where they're talking about corsets. The room will be absolutely full of people who are hoping to learn how to mod their own, make their own, etc. But there wasn't that many people who were really jazzed about the books. And if I brought it up in a conversation, there was that sort of like that thing like, oh yeah, Wells, I mean, oh yeah, Vern, mm -hmm, yeah, I really love that stuff. But you dropped 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea as movie Fleischer's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, George Powell's Time Machine. Now we're talking. I remember that film. I love that film. That was one of the greatest moments of my childhood, that kind of thing. And so I'm, I'm dubious that Vern and Wells are quite the literary influence that some people would 
say they are. And, and I understand how this stuff gets promulgated because somebody is looking for shorthand. They're looking for a quick way to say it. Somebody from the LA Times is on the phone and they want to know what, what is steampunk. And so you go looking for something that you can say quickly or you explain it for 20 minutes. This has happened to me in interviews. You go blah, 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 blah. And the journalist goes, I got to put that in four words, Vern and Wells, right? And away they go. But at the, ch- at the end of the chapter in Steampunk FAQ, um, where I'm talking about this grand fantasy tradition of Jules Verne and H.G. Wells, um, I say at the very end, to ignore two and a half decades of solid neo-Victorian spectacle as a factor in the growth of steampunk is foolish. So perhaps when someone says steampunk is inspired by Verne and Wells, they really mean the cinematic tradition they inspired. And, just to take it a step further and remind us of where we began today, Disney did not appropriate steampunk with the mechanical kingdom because you can't appropriate something that you helped build. And as we look at movies like Atlantis and movies like Treasure uh, Planet, um, we can see that influence. We can see the building of the aesthetic that, that Disney was part of and continues to be. Word on the street is that there might be a Disney Plus TV series about the adventures of the Nautilus in the offing. If so, I'm excited, but I'll also be interested to see whether or not anybody remembers to be angry about Disney appropriating steampunk again, because there's a good chance that we're going to see some steampunk there, but I also think we'll see the evolution of steampunk yet again. 